Thank you. It's so good uh, to be with you all. I've been here before, and uh, I count this church um, as full of friends, and particularly a couple of your pastors that I've gotten to know. And so it's kind of a, a it's great for me to be here again, but also even as I read this text for us, um, you'll see it, it feels very appropriate. Uh, it's how I think and, and feel about this church. So um, hear the reading of God's word. This is coming from Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Philippians 1, 3 to 6. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, you promise to inhabit our praises. You promise that when you send out your word, you send it with your spirit so that it will not come back null and void, but instead you will do a good work. We have other things we could be doing this hour, but we're here because we're yours. Not because we're strong, not because we're not distracted, not because we're so faithful, but because we're yours. We love you, but we long to love you more. And we sense that that love can only grow to the degree that we better understand your love and commitment to us. So would you make it so, we pray, in the name of the risen and reigning King. Amen. So really what we're going to do today is maybe a little different than sometimes what you might be used to because this is in a sense what you might call a theological sermon. We're going to hover at about 30,000 feet. We're going to take particularly that very end of the passage we read from verse 6, this idea of he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. And we want to kind of explore the theology behind that, the assumptions behind that. How can that be true? And so the guiding question for us this morning is this. Why doesn't God just instantly change me? Why doesn't he instantly change me? Because of what I do with, with teaching and, and writing and, and some speaking and stuff, some of the things that can happen is I will get notes or questions from people. And I think partly because I'm, I'm not someone who's there all the time, it kind of gives a, a courage and a bravery or a willingness to ask some things that you might not ask in other settings. But I'll hear these questions sometimes that are good questions, but most of us are afraid to ask. So, for example, I remember receiving a note from someone who was dealing with a pretty serious eating disorder. She had been for years, and it had been incredibly painful, creating all kinds of challenges for her, affecting not just her body, but her ability to work to socialize, to 
to feel known and to feel loved. And she so longed to be, as she said, quote-unquote, over the eating disorder. But the struggles associated with it just kept coming up. Well, that may not be your exact situation. For some people, the struggle is pornography. For others, it's a sense of feeling self-absorbed. And I know all of these are different and we'd want to nuance them. But for some of us, it's a sense of feeling so absorbed that when we're with other people, we never actually relax because we're constantly thinking, what do they think about me? How is this going? Right? I don't know what your issue is. Maybe, maybe the issue is you find there is a lingering level of anger that just shows up out of nowhere. You don't think of yourself as an angry person, but it comes out as a rage. Maybe it's a laziness that feels like a heavy blanket over you and it makes it hard to get going. It never seems to end. Now, whatever it is, and all of us have something, and actually most of us have lots of things, some combination of things, Here's the interesting question for us this morning. Does God like when we hurt ourselves? Does God like when we hurt other people? You get what I'm saying? In other words, if God, and I hope your answer is no. This is just a test. If God doesn't love us hurting ourselves and other people, if God doesn't want us greedy and lustful, and if he doesn't think sinning is a good thing, then honestly, can we just ask, why doesn't God just instantly change us? When you became a Christian, why didn't he just change us instantly? And the fact is, especially as we've been wrestling with things for a long time, at some point it starts to occur to us that because he hasn't instantly changed me, maybe he doesn't actually care. Or I think quite commonly, even though we don't voice this, we wonder, maybe he just doesn't know how hard it is. Maybe he doesn't appreciate how difficult. So to think through these things, I want us to spend time this morning thinking about three ideas drawn from this theologically. We're going to talk about process, time, and efficiency. Process, time, and efficiency. Let's start with process, this idea of process. So I'm a college professor. I teach at a place called Covenant College. One of my best friends there is an artist named Jeff Morton. And Mort, students call him Morty. He's from Philadelphia. And when he moved to the Southeast about 23, 4 years ago, for whatever reason, he became super interested in kudzu. <laughs> Seriously, it's weird, huh? So this Philly guy, so kudzu has become, and if you don't know what kudzu is, I assume you do because of where we live, but... You know, this invasive plant that overtakes everything. But here's what's so fascinating. So this became very intriguing to him. So, so Jeffrey will go out into, he lives on Signal Mountain. He'll go out into the woods all by himself in the middle of nowhere by himself. And the, the, he'll be out there in the forest and the kudzu will be up to his waist. And the trees and everything. And he'll be out there for hours just sketching what he sees, trying to not think about all the slithering things around his legs and what might be eating away at him. And then he'll go eventually take those sketches back to his studio. And over the coming weeks and months, he'll get a bigger canvas and he'll start to paint 
Now, I don't know anything about painting. And before one of my best friends was an artist, I just thought you just, I, I mean, how hard is that? Seriously, just throw some color. You see something, you paint it, you're done. Good. We're good, right? So I always think about that when it comes to grading. How does he grade? Pretty, ugly. Like, I don't know. That seems so much easier than what I do. But anyways, that's not fair to him. That's not true. But, anyway, so, but that's actually not apparently what the artist does. So what Jeffrey will do is he's, he then takes this canvas and then he'll start to draw on that. And then he'll start to do a layer of paint on it. And then, what I didn't understand, is then he'll often scrape at that paint. And then do another. And as the hours turn into weeks and months sometimes for these drawings, and he keeps track of it, they eventually end up in, there's been one in the, uh, you know, in the Nashville airport and in different museums and in businesses and in homes. And I do think when you look at his artwork, you probably don't see all the layers. But I actually do think you can feel it. You can feel the texture and the thickness. And you're they're drawn in by something about that. And here's what's interesting. If you ask Jeffrey, who's a, who's a colleague of mine, what do you want your students to most learn? His immediate response is process. Process. Right? He is interested in helping them, not just with a finished product, but to discover the wonder and joy of the slow craftsmanship of producing an artwork. He mentors them in the promise and the delight of development. Students want finished work. He's trying to help them understand the glory of process. I think we like that kind of story. We're like, oh, that's great. But it's so hard for us because you and I live in an age of rapid download speed, right? So, you know, some of you will remember AOL. Remember what that was? And those of you who don't, the older folks here can explain it to you later. But just to take you back, like to the mid-1990s, right? The early 1990s, what happened was there's this thing called AOL to remind you, and this is how you got on the internet. And so you wanted to get on the internet, and you remember the noise it would make? And it'd do that for a while, and then eventually, bing, and you're on. And it was so exciting. And you could send the email that way. Now, here's what's fascinating. Can you imagine if someone came out of the past of the 1990s, early 1990s, came into your house, took all of your Wi-Fi away, and put in an AOL system from 1992? Do you know what would happen? People would die. <laughs> right? Because we're in the South and people have guns and we're like, Shit, you know, it's crazy. Like, we just cannot, we want fast. Well, you buy a new phone and we lie. we're like, this is so fast. And then what happens two or three years later? This thing's such a piece of junk. It's so slow, like it's wasting our life. We have been just shaped and formed in this idea of speed and instant gratification. So that makes things like process very, very difficult because we wonder, why doesn't God just instantly change me? Why is it that I still struggle with yelling at the kids and I don't want to? 
I feel trapped in self-absorption that never seems to end. My disordered desires feed greed and lust. Sin is not a past, but a present issue for all of us. And it takes great effort and perseverance to not give up. So when God extends his grace into our lives, why doesn't he immediately free us? Let me put it to you differently. Does God's grace and love just stop with forgiveness? Is the gospel simply that God forgives your sins? Now this would be a longer talk and I want, I want to make sure you hear me carefully. The gospel includes the forgiveness of sins. But that's not the fullness of the gospel. God doesn't just forgive our sins and then step back and go, that was the good news. Now you're on your own. So we want to think through this a little bit because it, when we're not, does, it, does God stop with forgiveness? And because we struggle with this, Christians often deal with a lot of guilt and shame because of our continued struggle with sin and disobedience. You and I see, we can imagine where we'd like to be and where, where we should be, and we see how far short we come. And so we don't tend to put it this way, but is God just constantly disappointed with you and me? Did God forgive us our sins thinking, okay, I forgave you, now get to it. And then every day as we sin, God's like, oh, maybe tomorrow. Like, is God just perpetually disappointed with us? Here's the thing, although he clearly doesn't enjoy our sin, might it be true? Can you imagine it being true that somehow God values process, the process of growth and all the work involved, and he doesn't just value a finished product? So we were married nine years before we had kids, and you know now they're in college, but Back in the day, and you all remember this, and you know, we just had a baptism, but when you're teaching your kid to walk or someone's child to walk, right? You remember? So I would take Jonathan, my you know, oldest, and I remember, you know, he's, he's kind of like the Michelin man and couldn't balance or anything, and so he's turned, trying to walk, and you'd, I'd take him to the couch, and I'd stand him up, just wobbly, and he'd get it, one hand of his against the couch, right? Remember this kind of thing? You walk about eight, ten feet away, I look at him and I'd smile and I'd say, all right, Jonathan, come to me, buddy. You can do it. You know, and you're cheering him on and making this really big thing. And he's kind of scared and looking at you like you're an idiot. But then he eventually, what does he do? Moves his hand, starts to walk, takes a couple steps. And then what happens? Hits the ground. And so you know what I did, right? I walk over to him. I look at him and I say, you're an idiot. I don't understand what you're doing, Jonathan. I clearly told you, no ambiguity, exactly what you were supposed to do. I'm here, you're there, walk. What part of my command didn't you understand? Did I say that? Some of you, you know, you don't know me, so you're like, yeah, probably. <laughs> Call child protect. <laughs> child protection later but of course I didn't do that. although it could have triggered some of you hearing that story to be honest but you know I didn't do that 
I might be a schmuck, but I didn't even do that. I walked over to Jonathan. I pick him up. I'm like, oh, man, that must have hurt. Right. I'm sympathetic. Whatever he thinks hurts. He's pointing to his knee, his toe. I'm kissing it. I'm like, you guys, I'm so sorry, buddy. But then I eventually stand him back up. Try and encourage him. Go back. Call him to myself. Now, the fact is. When I saw him there fall and I was compassionate and kind and entered in with him. Did that mean that I was indifferent to him learning to walk? Of course not. I knew he needed to learn how to walk and I knew how difficult it would be because I knew his situation. I knew that he needed muscle development. I knew he needed practice. I knew he needed balance, all that kind of thing. It wasn't that I was indifferent to him learning to walk, but I actually understood him and his context better than he did. And I had nothing but compassion and delight in him, even when he fell. Yet when it comes to our Heavenly Father, the truth is we think very poorly of him. We seem to believe that God expects us to be instantly flawless, to never make a mistake, to never fall when they hit the ground now that we're Christians. As if God, when we do sin, is like, oh, wait, what? The omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God is surprised? Does God not understand the complexity of our situations? And No, that's not true. But when you and I envision God as a temperamental father, one, well, put it this way, one way to test whether or not we think of God as kind of a temperamental father, as, as not very kind, is this. Is the Christian life, does it appear to feel primarily heavy and burdensome? Or is it hopeful and promising? Is it only to be endured? Or is it because of him to be enjoyed? You see, God designed us. He made us as creatures before there was any sin. And to be a creature meant you could grow, you could develop. He made us in time and space, that ability to grow one of our great struggles is we don't connect creation with recreation. We don't connect creation with sanctification. So we all say, did God create the world? We're like, yes. But then it's, we kind of believe in creation. Fall. Redemption. But we, you get what I mean? Like creation like back then. So that's partly why our Christian life just gets very spiritual in our things like our bodies, our vocations, all aspects of life. We struggle to make sense of why they matter. We need to create, connect creation to recreation, to see that the spirit of creation who hovers over the over the chaotic waters in Genesis 1-2 to bring about order out of the creation is the same spirit who now dwells in us to bring order out of the chaos and struggle of our broken lives. The point is God values process. So let's talk about time. Talk about time. It's kind of interesting to think about. God's not actually in a rush. You ever with people who are in a rush? It doesn't feel great to be with them. Because they're always going somewhere else. But we tend to associate God's good work with finished products. And that actually skews some things for us. So I want you to think about this. Sorry, I ask a lot of questions. I'm a professor and I normally want engagement. But here we go, right? So how fast can God do something? 
Like as fast as he wants, right? How fast can God create the world, the universe? I mean, faster than that, right? Faster than a millisecond. As fast as fast can be. He can make it that fast. This is super interesting, so we're going to stop and think about this for a second. Because I don't have time to totally talk about this, but I, I'm of the strong belief that as evangelicals, we have a fairly weak doctrine of creation. And what I mean by that, it's like an undeveloped appreciation of the significance of creation. People think, what are you talking about? We talk about creation all the time. But for the last 150, 200 years, when we talk about creation, in our circles, pretty much the only thing we tend to talk about is how old the earth is and how God made it. I'm not saying there's nothing to those questions, but the fact that that's what we talk about and all we talk about has skewed the whole thing. So I want us to help, I want to help think through some other aspects, or particularly one this morning that maybe you haven't thought about. So let's take this. Uh, let's talk about um, how fast God could create the creation. We talked about that. Well, I'm going to get, here is, here is trivia for you. If you remember nothing else from this sermon, this is free. All right. I'm going to tell you when the world was created. It was created on October 22nd, 4004 BC. Now you may not understand, but that is, what, that is the exact date that James Usher in 1650 said that the world was created. Now, Christians are divided on this. There are Christians who would say that, yes, the world is 6,000 years old or maybe 10,000 years old. And there are Christians who think their world is 4 billion years old. Now, here's what's fascinating to me. I'm not interested in that debate right now. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at one of your pastors for having me. Whatever. Right? I actually not bringing that up to give you an opinion on that. Here's what I want you to... Are those numbers different? 10,000 years old, 4 billion years old? Kind of different, right? Here's what's fascinating. For Christians in this discussion, no matter where you're at on that discussion as a Christian, everybody has to agree that the God who could have made it like that didn't. Even if you think the world is six or 10,000 years old, those days, whether those days are six 24-hour days or the day represents much bigger, either one, it says God who could have done it like that didn't. God actually likes to take his time. Before there's any sin or fall, God values process. In the Genesis narrative, it's so cool. God actually, like an artist, creates a space, whether it's the sky or the sea, he'll create a space. And he'll go, oh, I like that. And then he'll fill the space. And, oh, that's good. And what we should get at a minimum when you read Genesis is God's like taking his time. is like, oh, I like that. I'm, oh, I really like that. And then he builds on it. And like, oh, this is good too. Oh, this is good. So that the pinnacle of his creation with human creatures, we read how he, as God is connecting and interconnecting the various parts, declaring it all good, when he finally gets to Adam, Adam doesn't just come from nothing. It says he comes from the dust of the ground. And God says, oh, this is good. He's clearly building his creation with purpose and care, no matter how you think of it. I mentioned that for our context here because it has everything to do with our personal lives 
from the beginning, before sin was an issue, the infinite God was comfortable with making his creation and creation by its very nature is limited. And that often means it's about growth and process. God's not panicked by process. You see, he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. God is not like, you know, we lived, um, my wife and I back in the 90s lived in Orlando for three years uh, as I went to seminary. And so we'll visit friends there every once in a while. And some of you who go to Orlando sometimes will know Someone recently told me this is called the eyesore of the I-4. I think that's what it's called. But there's this, there's this skyscraper. I don't know how else to describe it. I think it's 10, 12 stories high, something like that. Skyscraper right by the highway. And I, I want to say it was like 2006, 2007, something like that was when they built it. Millions of dollars went into it, I'm sure. But it stayed unfinished. It's never had windows on it. Now it's been 15 years or more. Think about that. Someone who's zealous and then ran out of money, resources, ability, whatever it was. Sometimes we think of God that way. It's kind of like God, God poured into us, forgave us our sins, and then we keep sinning and we kind of feel like God is like, whoa, whoa. Well, we just did a confession of sin. You just, you gave me more sins. I'm running low on cash here. Is God running out of the resources to forgive our sins? No, Jesus on the cross, it is finished. This is why Paul talks about his grace is out of the abundant, extravagant treasures of God's grace. God didn't start a process. He's going to run out of resources to finish. So let's talk about efficiency. Efficiency. And church buildings are a great example of this. Here's the question. Is God efficient? It's kind of a trick question. So in terms of church buildings, a community tends to communicate its values and its architecture. This is often a major tension and struggle, and I think often a legitimate discussion and struggle among Christians, because when you start to build something, a church, one of the tensions is, what should we make it like? And as Christians, you can say, we should just make it as basic and simple as possible so that we can use all the extra money and resources, maybe to send overseas or to help material. Those are legitimate questions. We should be asking those kind of questions. So why in the world have a nice room like this because legally pretty sure it's the case we could just have eight foot ceilings do you think this would feel any different in here with just eight foot ceilings oh yeah and you don't understand unless you've been in a room like this with just eight foot ceilings and I'm at the level and we're trying to talk see it's very interesting because why would we ever pay for something like this these architectural extras having you know, all these nice flowers outside or flowers here. Why, why have that? Right? Is, are these just forms of indulgence? Self-indulgence. Here's the definition of indulgence. Having or indicating a tendency to be overly generous. To be lenient with someone. Overly generous. What I mean by this is, do you think God is indulgent with us? 
Now, let me just, I'll just tell you, I think there's all kinds of reasons to avoid the language of indulgence. So let's leave that aside. But I do think behind it is actually the interesting question, right? How do we judge things? So do you, stay with this example of architecture. Historians of architecture and social critics over the last, you know, basically since the 1950s have been studying this because one of our strong cultural values in the West has been to say, you know what we should do? We should build things where it's all about efficiency. And that has often been especially when it's come to things like public housing. So when my wife and I lived in London for three years, right by where we lived was this massive structure made out of thick gray concrete. It was massive. And it had very few windows, indoor-outdoor carpeting. All the walls inside were beige. No color. It was efficient. And it hung over the people like a lead blanket. It was a weight. It sucks the life out of people. Beauty gives life and the absence of beauty takes it away. Where people ask, where is the life? Where is the beauty? Where is the loving process? Why do I use that illustration? Here's what's a surprise. God's, especially for those of us in the West, and this isn't bashing the West, but it is helping us be more self-aware. God's highest value is not efficiency, at least not in any mechanistic or simplistic sense. God's highest value is love. God is more interested in beauty than speed of process. He's more concerned to lift our gaze and to provoke the song, to stimulate our imaginations than just to get things done. Don't misunderstand, God's not wasteful, he's not negligent. He is purposeful and wise. But he doesn't do exactly what we might expect. Well, let me, let me make sure you're getting this. Think about creation. How wasteful of God. He could have just made the entire world black and white. Now, I know that sounds crazy to you, but think of how efficient that is. And you still might think it's crazy, and I'm going to say this without judgment, kind of, but... If how many of you will go home today and in your home, every wall in your house is white? I think white walls are pretty. But one of the reasons why we paint every wall in our house white is because when the kids do something, when something happens to the wall, the same bucket of paint fixes it anywhere. It's cool, right? So why doesn't God just say, I'm just going to make everything black and white, super efficient, super just clear, Think about it. Why the extravagance of a peacock's feathers? It's extravagant. Why the careful complexity of an orchid? The multi-layered nature of a human voice. We could give explanations for these things. But why does God care about depth and wonder and diversity? Why? Because God is not simply driven by efficiency. Love, beauty, wonder, and worship are God's main goals. Right? Sometimes God can be astonishingly quick. He can make a dead person rise. He can turn water to wine. But because he's compelled more by love than efficiency, he often takes his time. Exodus normally takes time.
process has always been the basic normal pattern in which God works in his creation. The Father, through the word, sends the spirit over the darkness, hovering, bringing order out of the chaos and struggle. Gary Selby is an American um, uh, a professor, but anyways, for, for a particular thing that was happening, he had a group of American college students going over to East Africa for some sociological uh, work and observation. And, and one of the first days, he sent out some students, and they were supposed to do observations. And this group of students came back, and they were, you could t he said that, you know, basically you could tell they were very happy about what they discovered, and they had all these things to say. And basically what happened is as they were out, they noticed that there were these three or four men doing this task that they were pretty confident it would only take one person to do. And as they told the story, they basically talked about how inefficient, and they used the language of backward it was. And part of what Selby tried to help them understand is in the particular area where they were there in East Africa, efficiency was a value, but it was not the number one value like it is in the States. There, other priorities like friendship and community were more cherished. I'm not saying the story to romanticize one culture and bash another. All of our cultures need to be critiqued before God. But this is an area where we are just so much in the water of it, we don't realize how profoundly we've been affected. But love, community, and growth of character are often, though not always, but they're often at odds with efficiency. Right? Do you know what one of the most inefficient things you can possibly do? One of the most inefficient things you can possibly do. It's love. Right? Have a baby. Or a puppy. Right? This is for, for people who their first child is very common. I remember feeling this. Like, we're humming along, we're doing life well, and now all of a sudden there's this thing. Right? My wife used to joke with people when, when our son was newborn, and they're like, how's it, how's it going? And she'd say, like, Jonathan's just super needy. And you'd see the panic in their faces, like, hey, he's a baby, right? And she was joking, of course he's needy. Love is inefficient. It enters in with needs and often has needs, right? But in this, we start to experience what God is doing. So let me conclude. Do not lose heart. It is easy for us to be discouraged when we look at our lives. We see how far short we fall of where we desire to be and where we think God wants us to be. We see both our sin and our limits. And we wish these ongoing struggles with troublesome attitudes and addictions and actions, we wish they would just end. Yet God, He sometimes... I've seen them take an alcoholic who's for a decade and then they stop. But that is not normally how it happens. God does not normally just change our attitudes, free us from our addictions and reform our actions instantaneously. Ordinarily, God changes us by persistently picking us up when we fall down. By slowly and consistently drawing us into the love of the Father. 
the grace of the Son and the fellowship of the Spirit. And in that process, part of the beauty is God doesn't just reconnect us with himself, but with each other. Replacing our callousness with compassion, our hatred with love, our fears with hope. Here's the point. Do not lose heart. The creator God who began a good work in you, he will, he will see it to completion. Don't forget, God often chooses to do this work through his church, through his people. Never forget the triune God values process. He takes his time and he's driven by love. He will not let you go. He will finish what he's begun. Let's pray. Our good creator God, we thank you that you did not abandon your creation. We thank you for your covenant faithfulness. Even as we were reminded this morning, a faithfulness that doesn't just go to us as individuals, but to us and to children and to children's children. You are a God who abounds with compassion, who's quick to forgive. Would you convince us of your kindness afresh? Would you give us the courage to live as people who live in the very presence and power of your benediction? You know those here who feel so worn out by trying, so defeated by sin. Would you soak them in your kindness? Help them to really believe their forgiveness and also your smile upon them as you pick them up. Help us to be the kind of community that reflects your smile, your compassion, and your commitment to process. We pray all this in the name of the risen King. Amen.